You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, hilarious mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests go to patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl and sign up today to join the fun okay are we recording yeah we're recording i deny everything i have the tape I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We are thrilled to welcome the number one internationally best-selling author of the Rivers of London series, Ben Aronovich, to our podcast. Ben Aronovich's modern fantasy series is set in London and seamlessly blends magic, history, myth, fantasy, and just the perfect amount of humor. And we're such big fans, and we're so excited to have him as a guest on the podcast. Ben's books are meticulously researched, and he's been behind the scenes at some very fascinating places in London, including the Tunnels of the Underground, the Mail Rail, the Museum of London, the British Library, and so many more that we're going to talk about, I'm sure. So today, we're going to talk about Roman Britain and hopefully coax Ben into telling us some haunting tales from old Londinium. So welcome, Ben. Welcome, Ben. We're so happy to have you here. Hello. It's a very daunting opening. Of course it's a wonderfully fawning opening. I mean, I don't know. Do you want me to tell everyone that I work for you, Ben, or no? <laughs> no, no. Jen works for me. She does the merch. Well, she's freelance, actually. I employ Jen on a freelance basis because she was very good when she was working for uh, Hachette. And uh, I, I actually just went, oh, no, I can't lose Jen. <laughs> yeah. Jen is an essential part of my marketing strategy. Fairly fair to say that Jen is the marketing strategy. <laughs> She's also an essential part of my podcasting strategy, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I've, I've worked with men for years and years before I went freelance. And I've been so lucky because Ben is just one of those people who every time I get to talk to him about anything, he always has a million tales to tell me. Like he'll listen to a podcast and be like, let me tell you about this thing that you don't know. And I'll be like, please. So we thought it would be perfect as we are in Roman Britain to get him to tell us some stories. If only I had some stories about Roman London. That was a bit of a problem when I got your list of things you want to talk about. I went, I did all that research 10 years ago. I I went looking for it. It was like 10 years ago. Most of my Roman London research was done 10 years ago. Actually, I now know more about Hadrian's Wall because of that short story that I sent you that I do about London. That scholarship is more up to date. That's cutting edge scholarships, especially the stuff about the phalluses. Phalluses? Wait. The phalluses. Hadrian's Wall is famous for its phalluses. Oh, yeah. We always want to talk about the phalluses at Hadrian's Wall. Yeah. They were interesting to me because um, uh, the current theory about phalluses is that they had a, a ritual magic significance because they found them built into places where you couldn't see them. So it obviously wasn't there for everyone to go, oh my God, a phallus! It's not for the shock value. <laughs> not for the shock value. So the feeling is is that they, they, they used them on boundaries. So they were built into the sides of the walls next to doors so that you imagine where the door frame is. They were hidden behind the door frame and they were there to stop things coming through the door, which I incorporate. I will one day incorporate into a story. I was listening to, I think it was Elodie Harper on the Myth Baby podcast. She was talking about phalluses being like markers of, as Ben said, of doorways and stuff. And they think that's because they were both like supposed to be like a good luck charm, but also like quite a scary warning. Like if you come this way and you're not supposed to, then you will get fucked. Oops, surprise phallus. But you've also got the celebratory aspect, because you see them in Pompeii, and they're not there guarding against burglars. They're there to go, look at me! I've got an enormous dick! <laughs> look at my penis! Look at me! L.D. <laughs> Harper wrote this book called The Wolf Den, which is a fiction book about the uh, sex workers in the brothels of Pompeii. And she was saying that the interesting thing about Pompeii is, yes, you see them everywhere because Pompeii was a city dedicated to Venus and there was quite a lot of sex work going on there. But you also see them in places like proper gardens and like what's a phallus doing there? Is it a boundary marker to be like, if you're here, you're in trouble? The ancients didn't have the same attitude to phalluses and, and modesty and things that we did. We're very conditioned by a thousand, 2,000 years of repressive Christianity to not like our bodies, whereas the, the, the Greeks and the Romans were much more kind of like, let it all, I mean, they had their taboos, but they were much more let it all hang out, and they were much more open. I mean, these are people that had like communal toilets, remember, so they can't be too squeamish if you're sitting there next to... And communal baths, come on. <laughs> yeah, and communal... Well, they had those in the Middle Ages as well, remember. That tradition of, of social bathing continued up until about the 12th 13th century until the monks put a stop to it basically because it was it was too raucous i i think actually that the aristocracy just didn't like because i'm i'm a classical marxist in some respects so i tend to blame everything on class warfare as you will find out in my interpretation of londinium's history actually that leads right into the next question that we have we still haven't let ben like tell us what his book's about yet <laughs> oh you know we should we should do that first absolutely <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as his marketing person, I feel like I would be remiss if you didn't put a plug in for your book at the beginning. No, I, 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 look, I write books. They've got murders and, and history and, and stuff. The past is woven into the present because it's cheaper to do research than to actually come up with my own stuff. And also, I was a big fan of Alan Garner as a young boy. So, But also because the past, so much in your books, comes back and haunts the present. Well, that's also the thing about London, though. London is like that. It's an ancient city. 
and it's built on ancient roots. And and my favourite thing about London is it's the city that nobody wants. What does that mean? Well, let's let us segue into Boudicca here, right? Boudicca is always put forward as this symbol of nationalism, but she's not. She's a very narrow tribalist in that respect. And I've been present for, for evolutions of the way popular history is interpreted. So when I was started, it was all invading Celts, followed by invading Romans, followed by invading this, and everyone invaded and everyone else got pushed out. So you had the Celtic fringe, which is all the people who were pushed out of by the Anglo-Saxons. And now we know, of course, that never happened. We know that actually what you have is, well, we don't really know what happened, but we know that some Anglo-Saxons arrived and we all started speaking English in the in the eastern half of the country. I mean, I, th- I think that that's really true. Like the difference between um, cultural movements and things like that. Like, was it cultural? Was it linguistic? What was this transfer? Was it people or was it language and culture spreading through the same people who were there already? If you In the time of empire, you get this Victorian notion of peoples. They called them peoples, right? Who would turn up and displace lots of other people. And it's very, very imperial. And in some cases, it absolutely happened. I mean, you get the Assyrians who would like move whole cultures around the Middle East like a, you know, like a chessboard. But um, in the particular case of places like Britain, where we have the genetic evidence, then we know that the vast majority of the population of, of Britain until essentially the mass migrations of the 19th century we know they're the same people that were there 5,000 years ago. They're not even Celts. They're, they're actually the people that preceded the Celtic culture. And so, therefore, what you're actually talking about in some cases is waves of cultures becoming dominant or, or unpredominant. But when I was growing up, it was people. People came in. And then we went through a phase of what I call it's complicated. You ask an archaeologist what happened, they go, ah, it's complicated. You know, it, they, they, they turned up and stuff happened, but we don't know why. But hey, look at the grave goods. So you've been a witness to a lot of different schools of British history, right, Ben? Particularly popular history? But also in my lifetime, you see, it's now popular history has now swung back. So we're back to peoples invading people and genociding people. The only difference is we switched who we root for because the forest is like, yeah, we're on the side of the Anglo-Saxons and the Romans mostly because they're imperial. Because now we're in this age of nationalism. Everyone's looking for uh, heroes. You get the parallels between the nationalist use of uh, the German nationalist use of the Teutonberg Forest as a national foundational myth. And now you get, you know, you get the English nationalists, despite, I mean, despite the fact that he was not English, uh, of Boudicca. And now Boudicca is an English nationalist. In the 70s, you get plays like Romans in Britain or Alan Garner's Redshift, where the Romans are a metaphor for something. I feel kind of sorry for the Romans as they seem to be these people that everyone projects whatever their bugbear is. They project them onto the Romans, including like, you know, you have this vision of the Roman Empire as a vast bureaucracy which is like a very 19th century. So because, oh, it must be a bureaucracy because it's like the British Empire. But the British Empire was never that much of a bureaucracy. Bureaucracies don't really turn up until the kind of beginning of the 20th century. But everyone has this image of clerks inside the royal palaces, when really it's actually much more like the mafia. The Roman Empire was the mafia. I wanted to do a whole thing on the patronage system, which actually does strike me as very similar to the mafia in a way. That is to come. (laughs) Well, it's exactly like how oligarchs work now on that patronage system. That patronage system is now making a comeback. I mean, it's not just the Romans. You get that kind of patronage system in most ancient societies because you have a a society where you don't have systematized bureaucracies. I mean, the the only one where I can't think of that is Egypt, who seemed to have invented, and Mesopotamia, who seemed to have invented a sort of top-down priestly control system that kind of prefigures the Roman Catholic Church. Isn't that why we have writing to begin with, is for these systems to function? 
Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you have to have these systems, otherwise, you know, no one's going to make the beer for a start, and this is important. Agreed. <laughs> I always think the people that lament the rise of cities have never spent enough time working as a peasant farmer. Just have not done enough subsistence farming to really know what you're talking about. Yeah, and I don't mean, and when they say, oh, I love, I'd love to be a farmer, they're thinking of, of, of the 19th century farming model where you have machines and cheap labor. It's still not an easy living to, to be a farmer. And you're still imagining that every summer is going to be good and a volcano isn't going to go off and ruin your crops for two and a bit years. Well, you're probably throwing throwing the odd person under a bus to make sure the volcano doesn't erupt and it's a good summer. A couple of sacrifices. The occasional virgin sacrifice, that's the thing. Why is it always a virgin? <laughs> we don't know it's a virgin. We just assume they were big into virgins. Yeah, it's, it's the idea that virginity instills with a certain virtue. The virtue is instilled of whether you had a, had sex or not, which is actually not an ancient thing, nearly so much as a, as a modern thing. It's monotheism. Monotheism is very big on virginity. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So we've just spent our last season in Roman Britain, and we've traveled up and down the UK, painting a picture of what it looked like under Roman occupation and making a lot of spurious generalizations. But we knew we were going to have you on a podcast, Ben, and we saved Roman London for the resident expert. (laughs) Oh, God. Look, it's your brand. Lean into it. We're just asking for some very uninformed conjecture here. Um, can you tell us what old Londinium would have looked like, say, the day before Boudicca rolled into town? Uh, well, it's funny you should say that because because I read these questions in advance. I went and made some notes. So what you got to remember is that London wasn't so much founded as something that accreted around the bridge. Okay, And it's on the north side because the wet side, the south side was wet. Although we have to assume that they built the bridge at the sort of like the most driest bit where the bank, because the River Thames is a big, wide, marshy river at this point. And so therefore, they put the bridge across at the bit, you know, the narrowest bit. It's the highest up the river towards the estuary you can get and still put a bridge across until you get modern bridge building techniques. And so it becomes the entrepot to to the whole of Britannia. If you look, if you look sort of like turn the map of Europe on its side... Okay, so that Scotland is pointing to the right. You can see that all roads from Rome and all the roads from the northern provinces of the Rhine, which you remember is a great big conduit, so there's tons and tons of stuff that go up and down the Rhine, all feed in to Londinium. So the stuff from the Germany comes in down through the estuary, 
continental stuff comes up from France, goes up through the road system up into across Dubai or some of the other southern ports. The road system kind of narrows in at this point where the bridge is, and that is where you have your port. And so everything is feeding through that, but it is never before Boudicca turns up. It's not the capital. It's not even really a colonia. There's no evidence that it was even counted as a colonia. So I imagine that it was basically... It was basically a shanty town with a bridge attached. That's how I imagine it. To us, it would look like a shanty town. To the Romans it would, and the Britons, it would look like a perfectly normal settlement. It would be, a, I suspect, a mixture of rectangular wattle and daub houses. I don't know, was there a fort? I couldn't find any evidence that there was a fort at that point. There wasn't a fort in Londinium at that time, no. So what you've got is you've probably got ribbon development coming out. So you've got the, the roads fanning out from the bridge either side. So I suspect what you've got is you've got lots of um, the high-status housing, which probably would have been rectangular, thatch-built, wattle and daub, but in the modern rectangular style, so that you have corners like proper men, right? (laughs) Men have corners, yes. (laughs) Real civilised men have corners, right? Proper corners. (laughs) Proper corners. And then I suspect you have roundhouses. These roundhouses, a lot of these roundhouses would have been set in compounds and there would have been people growing crops inside their compounds and herding sheep and all this sort of thing because they were there basically feeding the traders who were there handling the trade that was coming through London. So people were coming in and coming out. So there must have been places for people to stay. I don't know how they managed that, but there must have been places that people would stay. So I suspect there were equivalent of guild halls, although they wouldn't have been called guild halls. And uh, an industry would have come up. And, and a lot of people would have just like turned up from like far off places and just never gone any further. Because you go to Camelodium or whatever it was called. Is it? Camelodinum? Bloody Colchester, right? Which was the capital, which got the big stone buildings and the forum and the Hippodrome, which they discovered quite recently, and the Temple of, and Temple of the Claudius, the accidental oppressor. My theory about the invasion of Britain is that Claudius had these plans, he had these legions, and if he didn't do something with them, somebody was going to get itchy fingers and come south and, and take Rome. He, he had already had quite a lot of experience of what happens to family members of, like him when this happens, and so therefore I think he did it as an act of self defense. a bit hard on the Arden Brits. Also... Or he wanted to be away from his wife, who was quite good at poisoning people and fermenting rebellion. I mean... The Romans always always strike me as extraordinarily petty and extraordinarily clever at the same time. And so like, the Romans are like, we are going to kill everyone, but we're going to build this bridge and these aqueducts that work within like tolerances of one centimetre per 40 metres. And we're going to do this like with string. <laughs> it is really funny when you, you, you sit there and you if you go down to the city and you walk up Kingsland High Street and that is a Roman road. That's a Roman road. I live in a city where if you find a street that's wide and long and straight, it's probably a Roman road. Interesting. How many Roman roads that are still like where they were when Londinium was built are in London? Well, Kingsland High Street's definitely a Roman road because you can stand up in Dalston and before they put all the buildings around it, you could see the gherkin at the other end. You just look down the street, there was the gherkin rising above it. I'm, I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. But there are there are four or five roads sort of migrating out of central London that are basically Roman roads. And you can tell because they're very wide, because the Romans used to build, I don't know, what was it, 12, 15 metre wide roads. And so therefore, you know, people think they're kind of narrow little tracks like, oh, like we would have. But no, they're freaking motorway sized with a verge, a camber going down to keep them nice and dry and very varied. That's the other thing. This is from the well, let's get complicated stage of archaeology so before we thought like Roman roads were all built the same way everywhere but no 
if you look at them, you know, done detailed archaeology on them, you find that they're made out of the traditional way where things are available, and where they're not available, then they improvise making other things. I always loved your bit about the wall, which is exactly what happened in the wall. I love the boulders. The boulder just wanted it more. (laughs) (laughs) I was just wanting it more. Yeah, you know, I think, I think, like, what happened is, is you would get a team, and they would get there, and they would say, fuck it, leave it for the next team, and the next team would look at it and go, Oh, well, obviously they meant it to stay there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not having a go at that. (laughs) And if you think about they're rotating the officers out out faster than they're rotating the men. Right, so the men are there longer than the officers. So the men know that the boulder was supposed to have been moved, but they could just tell the next set of officers, oh, yeah, it was part of the design that we left it there. You know, the priest said, I bet you they used a lot of of the Mithras guy turned up and said, no, this is a boulder is sacred to Mithras. I mean, everybody was in the Mithras cult who was in, you know, the upper echelons anyway. So you'd probably just guess that and be right. I always get the impression like Mithras was for the officers, but for the ranks, it's like it's Jupiter all the way. That they were much more, and Mars, Jupiter and Mars with like, like big, solid, traditional. Right, that's the noise that they made. <laughs> you know, so um, I wrote in my notes, London wasn't even a courier probably didn't have a decent forum or even a grid. It would have been described as a vicus with delusions of grandeur, which may explain why it had a Romanized British name, we think, rather than a proper Roman one. Yeah, that's the impression I get is it's, it was more of a vicus, really. Yeah, and, you know, and a lot of the, a lot of the camp followers are going to not move past London. I would have said of the twenty to 40,000 that I said to have killed died in London, I'd say the majority of them were probably locals. Because I can't imagine that the Roman Empire had it, even with 20, 30 years since the conquest, I just don't believe they would have had time to build up a population of 40,000 Romans or even Italians or even Gauls or, or whatever. I think they must have been. And if you think about it, London has always had that thing where you stay there for a year and a day, you're a freeman and they can't send you back to your master. That was a thing in the medieval period. Is this in reference to slavery or? No, no, serfdom, if you're a serf. You talk about Boudicca fighting for freedom, right? But she was fighting for royal freedom. She wasn't fighting for, like, slave freedom because she had slaves. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're, if you were a downtrodden Trini, this is why you were looting the place, because this was your best chance of getting yourself half a roundhouse, you know, which you didn't have to share with a pig. And I suspect a lot of people flooded in from the countryside, as they always do into cities, to escape living in the countryside because they were at the bottom of the heap. If, if you think about... Uh, what London was like in, in AD 60, right? You have that marsh. And we know that in ancient time, marshes are just like, they're better in some ways than cultivated land in terms of high protein, high quality food. And they operate all year round because you get waterfowl. What what marsh are we talking about? The, the, the whole of South London, basically, was basically a marsh. Oh, okay. It, was this during Roman times, or is this later, or the, the whole time? The original primeval, unspoilt Thames was a big, windy, wide estuary river, with and it would have had estuary marshes. It would have had the kind of marshes you get on, well, further up the estuary, on the Essex marshes before they were drained. Uh, marshes are fantastic in ancient times. They're more productive in many ways than cultivated land in terms of providing all year-round food, plus reeds, plus all this stuff, plus oyster banks further down the Thames. London must be incredibly well fed. So you imagine you're like, so I want you to imagine you're your Catavalian peasant. You're living in a roundhouse with about 50 other people, right? And a dog and a cat and, and animals and whatever. Uh, and if you go to London, 
right? It's the streets really are paved with gold. You can go to London and you will go out. You can get a duck, which you know how to do because you're living on a bloody marshal to start with. You go out, you can catch duchess, ducks and weave things out of marsh reeds, right? And then flog them for actual denarii, actual real money. And that puts you on the same level, right, as your social superiors back in the village. There's upward mobility for somebody from the countryside in the UK coming to London. Yeah. In- invasions always create upward mobility for someone, right? The Rovers used to pick off the aristocracy, right? And that that's an easy sell. It's like, would you like to live in a roundhouse and have to fight for your position every 10 years? Or would you like to live in a large villa with underfloor heating and, you know, baths, regular bloody baths, warm regular baths? I mean, come on. Jen and I had this conversation in the last episode we recorded where we're like, we think our actual price is wine and hot water for baths. Like, that is what we've discovered here. Like, (laughs) essentially, it's fine. Just give up everything that your culture stands for and your language and all of that. But you won't realize what you've lost for a while because that's not how it's presented. Uh, I I think being a bit harsh on the British for, for giving up for actual material improvements in their lives. When you're a peasant, you don't own your culture. Your culture is owned by the people above you. Right? They own the culture. You don't own the culture. You don't have the same loyalty when you're a peasant to the culture that, that say, someone who is steeped in that culture and whose family and whose position in society is sustained by that culture. This conversation is making me realize that a lot of what we talked about in our episode was kind of inadvertently, I think. And we tried not to be like this, but that may have been focused on the Celtic aristocracy rather than the common person's experience, because that's absolutely true. Like, when you are not the rich person, you will take the deal that involves... Regular meals. Regular meals and less physical hardship. Exactly. Yeah, and also stability. Also, arbitrary justice. What is arbitrary justice? Tell me more about that. Arbitrary justice. Well, if you if you live in a, a peasant society and you live in a society based on, on chiefdoms, the sort of head judge magistrate is also the king and the priest, right? There is no appeal. There is no appeal to anyone. Now, you could, Livy can go tell you that you don't want to fuck with soldiers, right? But I, we know from the records that, that everyone was very keen to go to the law courts in Rome all the time, right? People were suing each other left, right and centre. So if you were a low status person in Roman Britain, you had done suddenly get this idea that, hey, I don't have to just arbitrarily submit to this chief just because he lorded it over my village and my birth. I can move to London and then I can plead my case in front of a magistrate or I can pay someone if I'm a successful peasant to plead my case. And this you see this carrying on straight onto the medieval period. But a lot of that does depend on your sex, because the Romans did not view women as people. They didn't. So if you had a husband who'd been quite successful, then yes, you're you're fine. But if you were a woman, maybe you were more tied to the older culture. I think the other thing to consider is citizenship in ancient Rome. Like, um, the laws were different from what I understand for citizens and non-citizens. And the c- non-citizens didn't have certain rights that the citizens had, and they would have... Um, like, I guess I, I forget exactly what it was. I'd have to, like, look at my notes. But um, the non-citizens would have been likely to be, you know, people who were non-aristocrats in Celtic Britain, at least during the beginning, like prior to Caracalla. But I would also say, like, remember, like, the Romans were definitely a protection rocket who didn't always keep their promises. Like, we see that with the death of 
Boudicca's husband, who definitely was a Roman citizen, and they're like, yeah, no, I know, we know he wrote a will, but he's not the boss here, we are. Why can't you get that through your little lady head? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's complete. I'm not going to sit here and defend. I'm talking about masses of degree. I'm talking about why were there 40,000 probably Celts, right, living in London in time to be murdered to death by uh, Boudicca when she turned up? Boudicca, Vercingetorix, Spartacus, they all committed war crimes and atrocities. None of these people were, were the paragons that I think later generations wanted to paint them. Well, in, in Londinium, it was even worse because Suetonius turns up, takes one look, fucks off. So do all the rich people. So so basically, basically the people that they kill, and probably the reason why they were so vicious, according to Dios, if we believe him, part of the viciousness will be is they turned up expecting to find a very rich city. And uh, I don't think the, the rich people left their stuff behind. So, and you remember, we're still talking about a shanty town with a bridge. All the wealth would have been pretty much portable wealth. And also, you think about it, it's right on the port. A lot of those people would have been on boats heading out to the estuary. One of the things we tried to show in all of our episodes about these sort of like ancient paragons of freedom fighters is uh, there's always an episode that has a cold open from the point of view of one of the towns that was being sacked to show you what actually happened to the people who were there when like in Camelodunum. When all of a sudden, like, the Romans don't protect you and Boudicca's army is there. And all of a sudden, you are going to die at the sword point of someone who, like, 10 years ago you were friends with. That's the reality of what these people faced. It wasn't just Roman non-Celtic violence. So, so basically, Suetonius leaves 40,000 Londoners as a sacrifice. And this leads me onto my theory about the statue of Boudicca that sits on Westminster Bridge looking over at Westminster. There's no coincidence that, that Boudicca pops up in 1904. She's mooted in 1850s, but the actual statue gets put up in. And originally it was going to go on top of Marble Arch, where Winged Victory is at the moment. But it's no coincidence to me that this was when House of Parliament was actually becoming a democratic body, that suddenly we have like an aristocratic murderous queen sitting on a chariot with spikes on it, staring at the Parliament. I think it's the gentry's way, those people, by the way, that fucked off before Boudicca arrived. It's why their way of saying to Londoners, the gentry reserve the right to massacre Londoners if they get uppity. That's my theory. That is dark as fuck. That is dark. <laughs> I, don't, I don't actually think that anyone consciously sat down and said we will do that. But I think it is part of the zeitgeist. Um, on that statue, right, on that statue, I made a note of this because it, it abused me. On that statue, one, that she's modelled on Victoria, and Boudicca means victory, or at least that was the interpretation at the time. And it says, Boudicca, uh, Boudicca, actually it says, Queen of the Iceni, who died AD 61 after leading her people against the Roman invader. And on the other side, it has a, the poem says, An Ode, 1782, by William Cowper, who I have no idea who that is says, Regent Caesar never knew thy posterity shall sway. And there you go. So it was explicitly an imperialist statue. So the thing about Boudicca and the Tudorburg Forest and Vercingetorix and Spartacus is they all come back into like popular parlance around the time of European imperialism. Like we start seeing the French start talking about when they're an imperial power about Vercingetorix, the freedom fighter, and we've got Boudicca, and the Germans have the Teutoburg Forest. And it's very, very weird that as soon as the colonization starts in the 1800s, we go back to the time wherein we were oppressed, as opposed to what we're doing now, which was oppressing people. Former oppressors use oppression as an excuse for being 
bastards. And in particular, a lot of times they adopt the classics, which is why it is very difficult to talk about classics sometimes without opening a can of worms. They're big fans of the Teutonberg Forest for some reason. Can't think why. Yes, they are. <laughs> you get all of this. And I was raised to be deeply suspicious of nationalism. I was raised as an internationalist. And as a rootless cosmopolitan, I, I don't trust nationalists of any stripe. As a soulless ginger, I agree. <laughs> as a straight up heathen, I also agree. <laughs> so speaking of London, um, I wanted to talk to you. I just read the very first book in your Rivers of London series, which I realized you wrote a long time ago. Ten years ago, anniversary edition out this summer. <laughs> Jen's got to put the marketing plug in. Six pounds fifty every time she does that. Really. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Cha-ching! And the podcast can go another day. <laughs> That's another bottle of hooch. Heck yeah! Wait, do we get booze in our in our payments here? <laughs> this is just her wheedling her way onto the rum list, Ben. <laughs> Merch is Jen is in charge of distributing the booze, so I think it's fairly it's fairly likely that you guys will get some (laughs) (laughs) um where was i going with this okay so i was trying to ask this question the rivers (laughs) so i just read the first book in the rivers of london series loved it and i was totally fascinated by the history of all the rivers which was a big part of the story and the way you personified them like the rivers of london and it's a it's like a modern urban fantasy with all these supernatural and historical elements. What do we know about the Thames and other rivers in Old Londinium during Roman times? And I know we touched on this a little bit with the Thames being really marshy, um, but let's talk about the Thames a little more and some of the other rivers. Well, the Thames is navigable at that time quite a long way up its length. I mean, probably as navigable as it is now. I don't think that's changed. It gets less navigable in the medieval period because people keep putting fish weirs up and there's huge legal disputes all the way through the Middle Ages as the king tries to keep the Thames navigable and everybody who lives along the banks tries to pull up a fish weir as fast as possible. So were people doing this during Roman times? People would have had fish traps, small-scale fish traps. This would not have been, you know, impacting the navigability of the Thames. Not so much because the boats would have been shallower and uh, the barges would have been shallow berth. Time team dug one up in Holland, a Rhine boat. They were quite shallow drafts, so they could go quite far up the river. In ancient and medieval times, rivers are the superhighways of their time. I didn't really understand this actually until I went to Trier, which is on the, on the Mosel. But you go down the Rhine in Germany, the big river. They've got big rivers in Germany. I mean, much bigger than the Thames. Huge fuck-off rivers. <laughs> fuck off rivers <laughs> mississippi river <laughs> yeah mississippi that is a fuck off river also the nile <laughs> yeah nile the limpopo like the Thames is actually a tiny whiny whiny little river but if you go down the the rhine or the mosel right you have basically a river valleys with quite steep hills and you suddenly realize why germany was made up of lots of little kingdoms because you just stick a castle at one end blocking off and you're, you're basically controlling the trade down this river and you can live quite well as as a member of the gentry. And so you have that. You have the Thames. So it's 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 pretty much navigable up to where it's navigable now, as I understand it. Uh, things are coming up and down. It. You've got a lot of productive the Chilterns. If you remember during the Roman later Roman period, that's massive villa city. That's like villa central, massive estates producing tons of food. A lot of which then goes to Germany. So it comes down the Thames, down into the port, onto the seagoing ships at the port, and then off to to the Rhine, where it's distributed to the legions when there was famine. You're talking a lot of fundias, right? I don't know. I'm talking fuck-off villas. Big agricultural estates that are mainly run by slave labor. Yeah. 
big agricultural estates. Most of the people seem to have moved out of the towns in the third and fourth century as, as being a bit risky and gone to live on their villas. And Britain was the breadbasket and London was the, the Chicago of that breadbasket. It was the place where, like in Chicago, was where all the meat came in and got shipped to the East Coast. London was the place where all that grain from the southeast and the southwest and the silver come to think of it gets all shipped in so but silver was mostly from the from the west wasn't it silver and tin yeah silver was mostly from the west but if you think about it londinium is the place where the food is going because it's going to germany so so that's very important also the walbrook is the reason one of the reasons londinium is where it is it's the main stream that goes through the center of the city it would have been the main water source the upper part of it was source washing water, all that kind of stuff. It would have been quite a fast-moving stream. It's, a, it's a, a sewer now, but it would have been quite a fast-moving stream. Then you have Fleet, which is the western boundary of Roman London, which is an actual valley, which you can still see. If you walk up to Holborn Viaduct and look north, you can actually see the valley of the Fleet snaking up towards Camden, where I live, basically. So you have the Fleet coming down off the high high hills to the north, which is where I live. Is the fleet really fast? The fleet would have been quite fast. It's sandy soil, you see, so you have you, rain falls on it, goes straight through down to the, the next layer, and then poofs out of the springs to the point where, despite the fact that it's mostly underground now, if it rains very heavily for a long period of time on the heath, which is a, a large park where I live, springs will start springing up on the, on the sides of the, the hills. If you read Ab- what Abigail did that summer, contains quite a lot. You see, I'm putting my £6.30 in now. <laughs> I did quite a lot on Hampstead Heath. So we talked a little bit about Hampstead Heath in our last episode. And we also talked about Hampstead Heath last time as one of the proposed legendary burial sites of Boudicca. It was not. Yeah, there, there, is, a, there is a thing that was, when I was always grown up, which was always called Boudicca's Mount. But it, it probably wasn't. In fact, they don't know if it's a folly or not. They think it might be a folly, but it's a listed monument, so no one's dug it. No, they did. They did some excavation, which didn't find any human remains, but they did find, like, refuse from that time period, like household waste. I can't imagine she's up there. She's in King's Cross, like everyone says. It's right where the Hogwarts platform is. That's where she's buried. Yeah. That's where the, the mentors come from. We all know this. I thought she was under Stonehenge. God. Okay, so we were talking about rivers in ancient Londinium. Well, don't forget you've got the Lee, which is a big river, right? Starts all the way up um, north of London and comes through a great big navigable river. So that would have been a conduit up. Also, the place most likely to be underwater with global warming. And the Hackney Marshes, which are another marsh. And remember, marshes are massively productive places. Right? They're not wasteland in the ancient and medieval period. They're way where you can just like go, free ducks! <laughs> they're basically like a, an, an avenue of upward mobility for people who have the skills to catch ducks and also you know if if the gentry weaves through with reeds also hide from people slave catchers and other useful things marshes i like to think was like just pepper with people avoiding slave catchers as it is today in fact so across you've got like uh, the other rivers on the other side which are not so important because the other side was mostly marsh as we've established you have Tyburn that comes down either side of Thornybrook Island, which is why it's an island. That was another quite big river, also rises up Hampstead Heath. So you basically have the hills north and south of London, and London is basically a bowl through which the Thames rides. And you have these sandy hills to the north, 
which are very good at catching rain and really feeding it down. And this is why it was a great place to put a city. And the Romans, who knew a thing or two about city founding, just went, yes, please. This was the perfect location in so many ways because it was basically the, the catch point of all trade and commerce and everything. I, I think the thing was, is that I don't think the Romans planned it that way, you see, because you've got to remember this operation was planned in Rome and they looked at their map. And you've got to remember that when you're looking at an ancient map, um, west is usually north. I mean, west is up. So you're looking at the map. And on that, it looks to you that like uh, Camelodunum yeah, is, is a much better place for a capital city. And that's why you put your capital city there. Because you don't really know that the Thames is a navigable river. You don't know much about the Thames. You don't know much about the hinterland above the Thames. So you get there and you put the bridge up as a military expediency. And then, like I said, London grows up like a pearl around a bit of grit, right? And when Boudicca turns up and burns everything to the ground, you look at the thing again and go, you know, that was a really stupid place for a capital. Let's put it in this town, which we can't stop growing, right? (laughs) Because, like, you remember, London grew without any freaking, really, any kind of official... You know, no one said, like, let's put a city here. No one went, let's, let's actually bite the bullet, stick a grid in, put in a governor's house. You know, it's important. And also, by that time, of course, they were thinking, we've got to go up to Anglesey, so it becomes much more strategically useful as a capital at that point. Because then you've got the Watling Street, which you were going to ask me about, which is like what I call the Mary Quant zipper across the dress of Britain. <laughs> Let's talk about Watling Street. I did like a little bit of digging into Watling Street, but clearly not enough. So Watling Street is pre-Roman. How old is it really? Does it go all the way back to the Neolithic? We don't know. We don't know. Peter Ackroyd would love to prove, is dying to prove that London existed before the Romans got there. We have no evidence of that. We have no evidence whatsoever. And we're, people have been really looking. Part of the problem with looking for anything archaeologically in London is London's in the way of looking for anything archaeological. If you think about it, it's the logical way down from that part of the country. For the same reason that London is the logical place to put a bridge, that line of Watling Street is the logical route down through the lowlands. If you're going from Wales and the borderlands down into the lowlands, that's the logical route. But besides, you need a diagonal because otherwise you have to go up and then across. Yeah, we don't know if it was a like a drover track. We don't know really all that much about it. So Watling Street, just to define it for people, is it's not so much a street, but an Iron Age ancient road that goes from, I don't know where it's, somewhere on the channel. It goes all the way to like Wales and then there's like an offshoot that goes up to like Hadrian's Wall and beyond, like way up. Is that right? Yeah, it's the, it's the Mary Quant zip. If you imagine, it's the zip that goes diagonally then across on a mini dress, right? It's basically the Mary Quant zip of Britain. Yeah, and so like it's old, it's pre-Roman, I believe. But when the Romans came, they started paving bits of it. We don't know. We don't know whether they started paving bits of it, whether it was just a coincidence, whether there was a continuous track. We don't know if there was a continuous Watling Street. It looks very, very, very like a Roman road. I mean, in, if you trace its route, it goes, ha-ha, obstacles are far, pussies. <laughs> Which might mean that some of it was created by, or at least altered very much by the Romans, maybe? Well, you can see the process in reverse in the Middle Ages, where you have a Roman road, and it hits a royal forest and has to go around. So you get this kind of thing, like a like a coat hanger shape. It goes, noink, and then it goes, noink, around the royal forest or land that was like owned by someone who didn't want a road through it. So they just pushed the road off their land. You get that with field boundaries and stuff. You can see where 
the Roman road was diverted. And you must have got the same thing the other way around with, with tracks, because we know that Iron Age tracks tended to move more with the contours than Roman roads did. But if you imagine you're a Roman surveyor, right? <laughs> Carrying your little wooden thing and string, as we discussed previously, and you're making your you're making this road. You're probably a Roman officer, actually. You're probably a legionary officer or attached to a legion of some kind. And you're moving on ahead, and the legion's like a, like like six hours behind you, and they expect you to mark out a route, and they're going to put their camp. So you're doing two things: you're building a road and probably looking for a campsite at the same time. And you're going to follow a track because it's just natural. You go into a forest and you see a track, you tend to follow it. And then you go to it and you go, hold on, we could just knock the corner off that because you're Roman and you know about geometry because you had a Greek tutor. Yeah. I always wonder if there was like a Roman engineering school in the legions. They must have had, but I've never found any reference to it. There's no reference to it? Well, it's like there must have been a legionary medical school, but we we don't have references to that either. There must have been a hierarchy of a medico hierarchy within the legions, but we don't know what that was either. We, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. Oh, by the way, I heard that they used to sleep above the horses. Is this at Hadrian's Wall? Yeah, you'd have like the horses on the ground on the ground floor and the, the men would sleep on the first floor. Because you, you were talking about the barracks. That's what I heard. There would have been auxiliaries, and most of the cavalry auxiliaries would have been pastoralists. Sleeping with their horses would have been nothing to them. That would have been like practically everyday experience. We talked about that, yeah. I mean, that was luxury, luxury. You have like four horses to a stable. We should have been so lucky. And you get to sleep above them and not in the stable with them. Also, you can keep an eye on them and you can sing them to sleep, apparently. Oh, oh my God, that's so sweet. Jenny, we have met your ideal man. The man who sings horses to sleep. Oh yeah, sings horses to sleep and rides along with a thing that makes a weird buzzing noise on the end of a spear to, to frighten the enemies and stuff like that. They, they were famously cocky and famously flamboyant. Let's talk a little bit about the Mithraeum that was found rather recently in London. Or as I like to think of it, the Temple of Bacchus. The theory, as I understand it, is it was a Mithraeum, but the evidence seems to be from the original excavation before they moved it for some reason, like 200 metres in a funny direction, then they moved it back. In the original excavation, they uncovered evidence that it was actually converted to a Temple of Bacchus, which I think is much more appropriate. to learn. Bacchus would have been really different from Mithras. So it's interesting that that's, it's, it's almost revolutionary that that is the path it took. I suspect what happened is the Mithraeus is a religion of the gentry. And so therefore, when the gentry mostly vacated London, I think everyone else moved in and had drinks instead. We also know there was a Temple of Isis somewhere, which we've never found, also on the Woolbrook, because the Mithraeum is on the Woolbrook. Rivers are sacred in ancient times, I mean, obviously, because they're the source of life. And also, you know, if, <laughs> it's a good source of fresh water as well, <laughs> quite right, and somewhere to pee. Were there a lot of temples and, and sacred places by this one specific river in London? Well, I don't think it was by this specific river. They went, look, the Walbrook is sacred. We must stick things by. I think it was the river that ran through London and prime real estate on this river. And Londonium wasn't that big. If you've ever walked across the city of London, you can actually walk across the city of London in less than an hour. And the city of London, you mean like not greater London? What's known as the city of London, which is the actual Roman part of London, the old medieval city, which was literally the Roman city with medieval stuff on it. It's basically the same area-wise, like it's about the same size? Well, it was bounded by the walls. See, the walls lasted all the way into the late medieval period, and so therefore we know exactly where the walls were because we have roads called Wall. 
we have Wallgate and Eastgate and, and Aldgate and things like that. We're, we, so we know exactly where the walls were. And those are the boundaries. And by the time we have maps, that's basically the outline of Roman. And the roads probably haven't changed either that much. The big mystery for me is why is St. Paul's in London? Why is that a mystery? Well, because at the time when St. Paul's was initially founded, when the Christianity came to back to England after the Anglo-Saxon, I'm going to put inverted commas, conquest, and they were all pagans and eating their mothers and stuff and chopping off heads, they stuck St. Paul's. I mean, that's why Canterbury is the top diocese, because that was actually a town when they got there. But they came to London, and you have Londonwick, which is the Saxon kind of town that's attached to just outside where Covent Garden is now, where we have found anglo-saxon things it's a big mystery like london went like nobody lived in london right and when you think about it there's walls all around it there's stone everywhere why would you live outside but when they come over the papal delegate found saint paul's in the middle of what must have been an empty city why was it empty back then we don't know it was just empty london was basically london collapsed after the fall of the roman empire the well, the fall of the western part of the Roman Empire, and after the 1411 or whatever the date is when the Roman legions officially left. Sometime in the 400s, theoretically. Yeah, and basically the legions withdraw and you have the collapse. And it looks like a, you know, there's a debate about this, right? There's a debate about whether there was like pillaging and people running around screaming like they're in a Doctor Who episode. Or was it much more just kind of like, well, standards of living has got a bit worse, trade fell off, so we moved out of the cities into the countryside, which we were doing anyway. And the Anglo-Saxons turned up and they put villages mostly on high ground, which wasn't claimed. But we know that basically London emptied out. Just nobody was living inside the walls, or at least nobody of any density. So from, from around when the Romans left to sometime in the Middle Ages... About six, seven hundred, and then suddenly, uh, suddenly London is back. It goes back to being a big city, probably because of the bridge. You see, you have the bridge. They built a bridge, the one that the Vikings burnt down, because it's still the, uh, the lowest point down that you can stick a bridge. And the road system still feeds into it. So the Roman roads, which are still there, still feed into the city. So it really isn't that surprising. But again, nobody wants it as the capital. The capital is Salisbury. I think at that point of Wessex is Salisbury. Even when you have a unified Anglo-Saxon kingdom of England, the kings very carefully build themselves Westminster, which is not part of London. When the Normans invade, they stick two bloody great castles either end of it, one of which is still there, right, in order to hold down London. And when they do the Doomsday Book, London isn't in the Doomsday Book because they knew they would never get the, the, the population of London to submit to the Doomsday system. Wait, tell me more about this. Why not? Because the the London mob is a fearsome thing. It's the biggest city in England. And it's very, very proud of its, its rights. It's always considered itself a free city, even when it's not a free city. Remember, I talked about the year and a day thing in London. You are a serf, but if you can make it in London for a year and a day, then you're free. Yeah, you're free, basically. Although making it in London for a year and a day would have been hard work. So we've been digging into the folklore and mythology of ancient Britain. And what is your favorite myth or bit of folklore from Roman Britain? I don't have a specific. Uh, what I like about Roman Britain is the, the I like systems. I'm a person who enjoys systems. Right? I'm a bit weird that way. What I really like is the Romans' attitude towards religion. I love the fact that the Romans' attitude to religion was this, right? You know, unless you were a monotheist, which to their eyes was same as being an atheist you go in right and you don't turn up and you don't go everyone will worship jupiter like that 
you say, oh, well, who's the god around here? And they go, oh, that's Tutarsis or something. And they go, oh, wow, he's just like such and such a parallel Roman god. Well, you know, and then, then you worship Tutarsis. You put a shrine up and everyone worships Tutarsis. And the local people who used to worship Tutarsis are still worshipping their local. You talk about the culture, right? I'd like to point out that in terms of religion, all you had to do is once or twice uh, give an offering to the Temple of Claudius, and the rest of your bloody spiritual life was your own. Well... Yeah? Tell me it wasn't. <laughs> so what they would do is they'd say, oh, you like you like Tartus, or you like uh, Camulus, the god of war. He's kind of like our guy, like Ares or Mars. What do we call the temple? The temple of, like, Mars... Camulus, and then you can worship you can worship just as you did before, but it will also be our guy, and then eventually you just drop the Camulus. Yeah, but they 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 didn't though, did they? Because Sylvanus, who is a who is a god associated with Banner, which is uh, one of the forts up on uh, on Hadrian's Wall, he's still there. He stayed all the way through the ancient period. He got done in by the Christians like everyone else. But I reckon they just let people get on with it because I just don't think they thought it was important who you were worshipping, as long as you were not dissing Claudius. Yeah, as long as you were also paying into the imperial cult, your, once, your obligatory once a year, you know, that was, that was all they asked for. So, shall we talk about the Pictish Beast? The Pictish Beast. I haven't listened to that program yet. I just started it. So, the Pictish Beast is a, um, it's like a mythical animal. Nobody knows what it is. It's a real mystery that is carved on Pictish stones in Scotland. It's a crocodile with legs. Yeah, that's kind of what it looks like, right? My theory was that it was an elephant. It was an elephant through time travel, through telephone, and nobody knew what an elephant looked like, but somebody had seen an elephant during the time of Claudius. It does, doesn't it? That's, uh, is, that's actually what I thought almost immediately, is it's, uh, cause that's, the tassel is, the headdress that it's it was dressed in. Yeah, see, he's on my side, Jen. And and it's got this thing, and it says, "Oh, that's long nose." Okay, but I didn't get to state my case yet. No, no, no. Let let Ben state his case. I, I want to revel in Ben stating my case. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> it's got a long nose. It's got a tassel on its head. It has big ears, and it's like, oh, okay. So how many of these? How many of these things? I mean, how many of these things did they draw, and how frequently are there? Forty percent of all animals represented on Pictish stones are the Pictish beast, and they're all the same. And they are all the same. Do we have a chronological spread for it? Um, a chronological spread, no. But I believe it was represented during the earliest times of the Pictish stones, which would have gone all the way back to like the three hundreds. It does look kind of aquatic, though. And look at the little feetsies. Like, the feetsies look like elephant feet pointed backwards like an elephant swimming. Feetsies that go backwards are like selkies in Scottish mythology. My theory is that it is like something from mythology. I think it might be like a representation of a selkie or like a, uh, like a sea monster or a, uh, like a mosasaur, which they would have found and not been able to explain. But in particular, like selkies, they're always... Shown as having their feet backwards. Are they? Are they also happy looking? They are. They have the big grin, you know. Yeah, you see, the big grin's what's bugging me. You see, I wouldn't if you doing an elephant. Would you put give it a big grin? Ah, uh, good question. You know what it could be? It could be the trunk and the tusks. Unless patterns of representation have changed radically, that's a big grin. I mean, I'm fairly certain an Egyptian would look at that and go, "Why has that guy got a big grin?" 
they just ate you, so they're happy. <laughs> it is a little bit of an evil grin, which does support Jen's uh, hypothesis that it's a selkie that is about to eat you. I think it's like a seal. I think it's a stylized seal. I I think it's like a selkie warning, like dangerous area ahead. Well, here's my thing with that, with it being like an animal that the pics would have seen. Like they know what a, what a seal looks like. They know what a whale looks like. They know what sounds like. They know what basking sharks look like. Didn't they come across the water, though, the pigs? Were they seafaring people? Like, some monks said that, and it's not true. Like, I don't think genetically people think that the pigs came from anywhere except Scotland. So we, we think they were a culture that sort of emerged out of the Scottish tribes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know for sure, but that is my personal theory, just based on what I read. Okay, so Ben is on my side. <laughs> I don't think he definitively said he was on your side. I think he agreed that the grin looks... Looks like it could be a sea monster. <laughs> I suspect it's a sea monster, yes. I don't think it's a, uh, uh, an elephant. It's got that kind of sea monstery kind of look to it, that flowy kind of sea monstery look to it. Uh, and and also, if you would, if you heard about an elephant, the first thing someone would have said to you is, It's fucking enormous! That would be like the takeaway, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be like, it's got a cute smile. It would be like, the fucker was like 15 meters tall and had spikes coming out the front especially if you like faced one head on like oh my god if you'd seen an elephant the, the size is the thing if you, if you have you ever met an elephant when i was a very small child i went on an elephant ride i i've stood one next to one and i never going anywhere near a freaking elephant ever again i'm sorry you could just step to the side that would have been it and i just thought they're huge they wouldn't even notice It'd be like they could squish me up against the wall and they go, oh, sorry, was that your body? Let's move on to um, Hadrian's Wall. Hadrian's Wall, not a canal. <laughs> yeah, Ben texted me, not a canal. <laughs> yeah, so we're talking about the vallum and Jen's pet theory was that the vallum was in fact a canal. Yeah, spurious theory. <laughs> I mean, I love it as a theory, but I've gone, I've driven down that road. <laughs> There's just no, no way if you look at the topography of that part of the vellum is it a canal because it doesn't have any locks it would need locks i mean it would leave millions of locks i was driving with a mad american archaeologist who who moved to northumbria because there's archaeology there and he drove me down that road and we were literally getting air on certain parts of it we'd go up a hump and then we would be catching catching air as we came over the over the hump but there's no way i mean there's great big river valleys like the one next to banner which is a great big river valley, which and then it goes up a great big hill, and the vela goes up, <laughs> goes parallel. It goes up. So I, I reckon, I reckon it was to create a um, an actual zone for people to live in. I reckon that's what it was. Well, people lived on both sides of it, right? No, but I think the idea was that it was a safe zone that you people could retreat into. Because if you think about, it, you've got this great long wall. But you know the people you're fighting are irregular. They're not going to necessarily march up to the wall and go, shoot me with your arrows, babe. Right? They're going to sneak around the sides. They're going to come through the night. They're going to find a bit that's unprotected. Maybe sail down south on a boat and then get off. Or you're not necessarily thinking you're going to staff the whole wall, are you? And also, like, the provinces to the south would rebel sometimes, so... Yeah, and the provinces have like five minutes ago were the same as the guys on the other side of the wall, right? So you build that, then you've got somewhere to retreat to. And the Romans in the final assault on was it Caractacus or Vercingetorix? I can't remember his name. The Gaulish one. Vercingetorix. Vercingetorix. You have the siege when Vercingetorix is trapped on a mountain, and the Romans built a double embankment. They built a, a, like a siege work inside of Gauls, outside Gauls. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, inside girls and outside girls, and, and right around the bloody mountain. So it's the sort of thing the Romans would do. 
you see the one on the other side which is much more slipshod it doesn't have to do so much because it's basing up against the wall right so your base is defending a wall and all it is is making it just that much little bit more annoying to try and take the wall right but on the other side it, that's actually your defensive position do you think that there's any significance to the fact that there isn't a vallum in any other wall construction throughout the Roman Empire that I know of. Like, this wasn't a typical feature of Roman walls, right? The inside vallum is not a typical feature. Having a vallum outside a wall is a bloody... Having a double vallum... Oh, outside a wall, absolutely. Also, it is a feature of, of um, Iron Age forts, though. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Tell me more about this. Well, you you have, you have what, multivalence. What I, could, I love it was you, you look at it as a multivalence hill fort, which means it's a hill fort with lots of balls. Well, they would be circular, though, right? Yeah, but I mean, the point is, is that it's not. The Romans were pragmatists. They didn't go, "Oh, we didn't do this in Egypt, so we're not going to do it." If you look at them, they will do everything exactly the same way, except when they need to do something a different way, and then they will do it a different way. I'm wondering what that need is to do it a different way there, as opposed to somewhere else. I think the people uh, on the southern side of the wall were much more stroppy when the wall was being built than we think they were. And remember, they've always got Boudicca, who, remember, was a, was a Roman ally, right? They've always got that memory of what happened to St. Albans. Exactly. And this would have been 60 years after Boudicca. It was built in like the 120s, I believe. This is like almost within living memory of the people building that wall that, you know, you never know. They probably won't, but they might. And so you might as well, you know, you're not going to have time to build it when you need it, basically. That's the Roman way. If you build it now, so you don't need to use it later. That's what Suetonius Paulinus found out about London. He's like, ah, oh, guess we should have made this defensible. Just abandon it now. It's fine. I just wanted to talk about the Vindolanda tablets. <laughs> okay, the, for me, the Vindolanda tablets are like when they took those um, old films that were recorded at 15 frames per second and they used computer interpolation to, so they were like full framed and then played them at the right speed. And you suddenly, they look like modern people dressed up in, in costume. And you realize, actually, they were exactly the same as us. Absolutely the same as us. It's like the Pompeii graffiti. There's a parallel, I think there's a parallel cache from London as well, also found in anaerobic uh, conditions. And it's great because up until now, the only people who we had loads of written stuff from were the Mesopotamians, because they did it on clay, which bakes hard and doesn't die. Well, so chances are archaeologists in 5,000 years will know more about the Mesopotamians than they know about us. And the Egyptians, because papyrus keeps in dry circumstances, you know, like a desert. So the Vindolan was our first chance to get like stuff that wasn't chiseled into a wall. And when you could think about it, when you're chiseling something into your wall, you're not going to be doing like the shorthand, are you? <laughs> tang, tang, tang. Although they do, don't they? Because they use all kind of initials because fuck me, I'm not writing all that out. In the Vindolan, it's proper vernacular Latin as was spoke on the wall, right? And it's like, ah, oh. <laughs> it's vulgar Latin. It's like, give me some shoes. Come to my birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> What's an example for you, Ben, that just really hits home about how they were just like us that you can see in the Vindolanda tablets? You talked about it. You talked about it. It's the, it's the God, it's like Jane Bloody Austin, that, that thing to her sister. Oh, dear heart, meet me. I, I miss you so badly. I want to come to your party. Kisses, kiss, kiss, emoji, emoji, emoji. That could have been written like yesterday. It could have been written in the 60s. You know, it's just kind of Wow. I just love it. I just love it. It's just that's a real person. I think that one of my favorite things about the Vindolanda tablets was the detail that like 
there was this one fort where um, everybody had drunk all the beer. So they're like, send more beer. The, the cavalry has drunk all of the beer. That's the unit you want to be in, man. <laughs> I'm just like, there's like this absolutely trashed cavalry in one of the forts. <laughs> no, you, you, know, you know absolutely what, what it would have been like, right? The Roman legionaries would have been your, your salt of the earth. Keep your uniform clean. Get your nose clean. Yeah, keep on the right side of the centurion. Oi, ooh, that kind of like, get the job done. Get a job done, right? Get the rock out of that fucking ditch, right? And the cavalry were swanky bastards, and we know they were swanky bastards because the, the cavalry with the plumes and they braided the hair of their horses and all that kind of stuff, like super kind of like whoa, crooning their horses to sleep. And they're they're and they're like flash gits who were kind of born in the saddle. They're all from places like Thrace and stuff like that. Horse lords, yeah. You didn't want to get on the wrong side of a Thracian. Oh, no. The Roman legionary are the backbone infantry. They're the people you want in the middle of your row. And, and the ones that will take discipline so that when unexpectedly someone charges out of a forest, you just shout, left! And everyone will, poof, knows exactly what to do, you see. And then you fucking have a word with your auxiliary as to why people got that close to the column in the first place. You think of how strong these people were. Right, you try building a camp, a day camp, a night camp, overnight camp out of turf within two hours right after marching all day possibly still wearing your armor in enemy territory possibly under fire after marching all day yeah this is why you had people for 25 years because you couldn't get people that tough that quickly did we get the stuff about the penises in there we were discussing the dicks at hadrian's wall yes you keep circling back to the dicks i noticed circling right back to the dicks like we do Okay, um, well, phalluses are, are a complex thing in, in Roman society, as far as I can tell. I'm not an expert on this, by the way, but I've talked to people who are. I know someone who's writing a book about it, a scholarly book. He's a proper archaeologist and everything. He's writing a scholarly book about the phalluses of Hadrian's Wall, and they're everywhere. They're all along the wall at various points, and some of them stick out of the wall in, in a kind of very obvious fuck you Scotland way. <laughs> so uh so it's definitely a fuck you caledonian statement in the in some of them but others are built into the uh the door jams or they're built into the walls where you won't be able to see them or underneath lintels in in doorways and that's because uh phalluses were actually a thing of power uh, if you think about it it was a very phallocentric society and so therefore definitely it was a thing of power i mean the, the romans were ridiculously omnivorously sexual in a way that I find very interesting because the Greeks are kind of like, look at us, we're totally Greek, we'll screw anything, yay. And the Romans are like, we won't screw anything, except we do, all the time. You know, and unless unless you're going through a particularly puritanical, like Augustus, particularly puritanical emperor phase, nobody cares, okay? Women, women go and get gladiator sweat so that they can, you know, as an aphrodisiac and things like that. This is not a society that's, that, that's kind of squeamish about these things, okay? And uh, and so therefore the phallus for, doesn't have shock value. I think it's mm-hmm. something that they they saw as a kind of, yeah, the same way that we would like to see a, a hand on a stop-go sign. I think for them it was it was like a, just a symbol. It was a symbol, like a body part, but it was it was an important body part because, you know, it was your dick. But um, <laughs> I think they would be really surprised that we would go. I mean, I don't think they were exposing themselves, but they weren't they weren't like, oh, God, yeah, it's me dick. God, get over it. Or possibly, or possibly, yeah, it's my dick. Good, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, they weren't not exposing themselves, you know, like. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I think the Romans would be amazed at the idea of dick pics. Why can't you just go around and show her? 
That would be their attitude. Look, if they had smartphones, the only thing they'd be using them for would be to send dick pics. Oh, it hasn't changed in 2,000 years. <laughs> no, no, don't be silly. If they had smartphones, they would have conquered most of the known world. I just think Mark Antony would be the king of, di- of dick pics. <laughs> God, it doesn't bear thinking about all those Roman legions actually in contact with Rome constantly. I mean, they would be sending dick pics back and forth at a furious rate, though. Yeah, so their own dicks, they, they, they seem to have more of a kind of um, warding off amulet kind of approach in some cases. They more seem to be there more to put strength into the wall rather than uh, to shock people or whatever you think a phallus is for. Or rather than like in Pompeii, where they seem to be like, yeah, look at us, we have fallacies. But also they're good luck. You know, they're good luck. Also fallacies are good luck. You, you also have fallacies that you libate for, for fertility or, or to have a son or, you know. I mean, in ancient times, people generally felt themselves to be much more connected to the whiff and woof of the supernatural than we do. So, you know, if you went past a dick and you wanted a son, you know, pour a bit of wine out on it. Why not? That's That, that may, just makes sense. A lot of these penis, like these phallus symbols were in places that people wouldn't necessarily see them. Yes. Built into lintels and, and into the walls next to doors where you, they would be hidden by the structure of the doors, which makes me think that they were probably boundaries or just to ward off evil. In my mythology for my books, I, I that's they're definitely they're like proto-magic kind of things that, that Roman proto-wizards use in order to to ward off evil. I had a whole short story, which I've never finished, which is all about, essentially, Peter Grant as a, as a Roman. He's sent up to Hadrian's Wall because something terrible is happening, and he's the guy reason there are dicks all the way along Hadrian's Wall. That's his solution. Now that they've retreated from the Antonine Wall, the locals are taking back that territory, and as they take back that territory, they're pushing um, a supernatural creatures ahead of them, and the supernatural creatures have got nowhere to go. So they've they've started attacking the Vicuses and the fort at Banner, and it's basically a kind of my a cross between the Ninth Legion, the Eagle of the Ninth, and uh, Tangerine Green. You won't even know these. It was probably made before you were born. Damn. And a film which I can't remember the name of, but it was a vampire film set in World War Two. The book that's based on starts with the same something is killing my men. Oh, cool. But that's never going to get finished because it's too much research for a short story, basically. And it hit about 10,000 words. So I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Novella. Novella. Oh, novella's 40,000. You have no idea. Novella's just like a novel, except, you know, at least it doesn't last as long. 20 more thousand words. You can do it. <laughs> do you know what, Ben? Do you know what I was just thinking? We have a fox story for you that I don't know if you know about the Spartans and their shirt foxes. Do you know about the Spartans and their shirt foxes? No, I've never heard of the Spartan shirt fox. Ben doesn't know about it, Jenny. You don't know about the Spartan shirt fox? Tell me about the Spartan shirt fox. Where was this in, Jen? Was this like fucking Plutarch or... I I believe it was... it was crazy, so it was probably Plutarch. I'm, I'm happy saying it was probably Plutarch on the flying ointment. So it, it was one of these ancient sources um, talking about the Spartans and recounting a story that I believe he, had, he claims to have witnessed himself about a young boy who, um, I'm telling this off the top of my head, so I'm probably missing some key details, but he had hidden a fox in his shirt. He was a Spartan boy. Oh, is this the one where it's nibbling on him? Yeah, and he very stoically doesn't mention that he happens to have this fox in his shirt until it kills him from chewing in his chewing his guts out, basically. Which I find a little bit unbelievable because how did people not notice? See the blood? <laughs> I don't believe a fox would do that, so 
I mean, maybe the fox was just disemboweling him in its fright and it's trying to get away, you know, not necessarily eating him. They're not disemboweling creatures. They're small snack. Foxes are tapas eaters, right? Yeah, they are. They take a little nibble and run away. They don't really want to be around you that long. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I don't believe that. I mean, a ferret, yeah, you said you stuffed a ferret down his. I wouldn't put that past a ferret. <laughs> I mean, the size of fox we'd have to be talking about for a, like a boy, a boy to hold would have to be a cub. There's no way a fox cub disemboweled him. No, and also they just don't do that sort of thing. They're just not disemboweling. Kind of, not, they don't have the, the dental work for it. We call bullshit on this entire story here, is what we're saying. We've talked to the fox expert about it. <laughs> if, if this was Pliny. It, it may have been Pliny. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. It's the sort of thing Pliny would put in his books, isn't it? Like, oh, yeah, and then this place, like, they have guy heads in their chests and shit like that, you know. It's because of how tough the Spartans were. That was the whole point of the story. I mean, the whole thing is, is they're so stoical, to which I suspect the Athenians went and stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a thin line there, <laughs> really. They go, tough, but stupid. If you've got a shirt fox problem, just tell someone. <laughs> like... Right, don't suffer in silence. Call 1-800-SHIRT-FOX. Talk to a trusted adult. <laughs> Drop the bloody fox. So shall we wrap things up? Okay, I would like, um, for future, yes, for future research, please could you do podcasts on, let me see. Do we have a request list? <laughs> okay, um, I need, I would like, I would like, podcast, I think you, you, you want to do this one. I want to, have you done an Orkneys? We have touched on the Orkneys for the Picks episode, but we haven't really dug into the prehistory. No, 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 I don't want. I don't like the picks. It's, I, I want you to do the Orkneys and Shetland. Come on, the Orkneys and Shetland, Vikings, and and God knows what. That's like a whole arc, really. Yeah, come on, I need it because I need it before the next couple of months, really. If you could just whack one out, that would be useful. I think that it's not likely to happen this year, just given our stuff that we're doing. But maybe in twenty twenty two. I don't know. But not before I go. I need one while I'm writing it, so I can listen to it and go. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. You're always welcome to come back on and prove that the Pictish Bees was definitely a, a selkie or a water horse at any point in time uh, and visit the podcast again. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> and where can people find you on social media? Yes, I want everyone to read all my books. They're, they're quite reasonably priced. Um, you, if you haven't, don't, have no idea who I am, I'm Ben Aronovich and the first book is called Rivers of London. If you know who I am and you haven't got all my books, why not? If you don't like reading, there's always the wonderfully read Cobner Holbrook Sprith, who reads all my books except for the ones that are read by other people. And he's really good, and lots of people really rate him, so do I. You can find me under my name on Twitter, although there's no point asking me questions because Twitter's just where I just mouth off a lot. I, I don't really answer questions on it. Um, I do have a Facebook page if you want to follow me, which I usually most use mostly for announcements and things like that. I'm also on Instagram, all under my name, Ben Aronovich. It's A-A-R-O-N-O-V-I-T-C-H. Um, I'm not very good at this plugging stuff. Press like and subscribe. See, I just say that automatically now. I have no idea what any of that means. Like and subscribe. This has been so much fun. <laughs> this has been just a ball. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Uh, bye. Thank you.